Hello and welcome to our Treasure Island Discs edition. It's a two-part discussion with four lecturers from the University of Liverpool. I'm Tundi Vargaskins from the Centre for Innovation in Education. And as you can hear from the title, the podcast is very much inspired by Desert Island Discs from Radio 4. Uh, but instead of casting our guests away to a deserted island, we asked them to consider how they would inhabit their treasure islands with their students, which is spending precious contact time together, whether it's uh, physical or virtual, in these uh, social distancing times. So I will ask each guest about a light bulb moment with their students and then uh, ask them to identify an album, a pedagogy or a teaching approach, and a teaching prop and a luxury item to, that helps them relax um, after the Treasure Island visit. So who wants to go first? I think it's, I think it's Stuart. <laughs> so um, can I ask you then, Stuart, to please introduce yourself, your discipline and your light bulb moment, and, uh, which is basically when you felt your students were getting it and that you were part of this and how this has come about. So I'm Stuart Wilkes-Haig, I'm reader in politics in the Department of Politics. Uh, so my, there's been lots of light bulb moments, actually, but one that I'd really pick out is a number of years ago when I'd, I started up a kind of extracurricular initiative, uh, which was this radio programme made by uh, politics students. And the idea was we just make these week weekly radio shows, try and understand what was going on politically. Everything had gone mad with kind of Brexit and Trump and, and so on. And I didn't really know if it would work. So I just, you know, I advertised it to all students, said, if you want to do this, come along. And students volunteered. And I thought, well, I don't know how long this will work, but they kept coming. They kept coming. So there was no, you know, credit involved. It wasn't part of their course. But I could tell that they really loved it. I loved it. it was these, you know, and I've continued it since. These have been the most amazing moments of my teaching career because the buzz around making these radio shows is just absolutely incredible. And what it made me realise is actually sometimes we're too hemmed in by our curriculum. We're too hemmed in by the way we assess. We actually make assumptions about students won't do this, they won't do that. Actually, if we do create something where they can see that they're really learning from something from it, that they're really getting value from it. They will keep coming back and they kept coming back. So in the end, I turned it into a module and, and we've carried it on in a similar way. And it's completely different from any other teaching I've ever done before. And it made me realize there's a lot of transferability from that to other forms of teaching as well. Mm, so that sounds really, that, that buzz sounds amazing. Can you talk a little bit about that and then we can pick up perhaps what you mentioned about transferability? Well, so the, the thing is about radio, particularly if you're going live, which we were, and we're recording now, but, um, but anything um, that's live, you really do get a kind of adrenaline surge, right? So you know the stuff's going to go out there, you've got to be ready. Um, so the students who'd volunteered to do this, and as I say, now it's a module, they really get that sense every week. Everything builds up to this moment. It's an important moment. They're primed for it. They don't want to let each other down. So this is the other thing, the perennial challenge of group work in universities. <laughs> students always complain about the other students and so on. Well, in this context, there's so much mutual dependency. They know how much they're relying on each other to get through this hour and to not 
you know, come across as complete idiots. So that's what creates that that moment. And we're doing stuff that's often very challenging because, you know, the news is changing right up to the moment we press the button and go live. So you have to be absolutely ready for anything. That, that sounds. That's, mm-hmm. that's what's really special. Mm-hmm. That sounds such as you said, both the the being live, the buzz of the activity, and then it's so realistic. It's I, I guess it's really what happens in real life. Yeah. So can can we pick up what you said about creating these spaces? So you know this started from a creative, flexible space in a sense, and now you've transferred it in the module. Were there tensions or you know uh, in between that you know going from a free space in into making it work in a module or did it just organically work anyway? So I had to think really carefully about that and how to do it. So the nature of making news-driven radio is such that when you transfer it to being a module, you don't want to define a curriculum. So you don't want to say, you know, in this module, you will learn about the politics of this country or you will learn about this particular political concept or idea because what you'll be covering week in week out is you know driven by the news so you don't want to predefine it um so at one point i did actually ask can i run this module with no defined learning outcomes whatsoever and you know whatever happens is the module and i was told i couldn't do that but then i realized actually what i needed to do is try and turn things around um, and define the learning outcomes in relation to the production of radio Um, to make all of those kind of transferable skills things, which people probably often don't think about too much, really make them the main learning outcomes. And then the content in terms of learning about politics of different countries, different political debates and so on, that's kind of secondary, but they get that as well, almost not realising that's what they're doing. So it was that kind of shift in my thinking about how to to design a module that was so critical. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Thanks, Stuart. So I think it's now time to uh, cast you away or take you to your treasure island? Can you choose, um, can you discuss what you would take with you? An album, can be a real music, because I know you like music, can be a pedagogy, a uh, teaching prop, and a luxury item for you as well. Well, um, yeah, I had to think a lot about this, actually, and about what that might be and how I'm going to change my teaching across all of my modules next year. And in the end, what I settled on um, was this homemade thing I have, which is my swingometer. Right now, people might not know what a swingometer is, but if you've watched any election night uh, program, you will have seen it. So it's this thing with an arrow which moves left or right to show which party is gaining since the last election relative to the other main party. So I made one for one of the election nights we once had, and it's a flexible one in that I mean I made it out of bits of wood in my cellar, right? So I made a kind of blackboard element to old style blackboard so you can you can write chalk stuff on it and then there's an arrow I made out of another piece of wood and you can put that in different positions so I can I can amend this swingometer to do almost anything to show change in almost anything to show progress whatever um, so if I only had one moment of teaching per week with my students whatever the module I think I'd take this because whatever we were doing I'd fundamentally like to be talking about where they're at and we'd mark it up however we felt appropriate to to define their progress or or whatever and it's a totally flexible tool Um, in terms of um, luxury all I really want is my Spotify account and a device to play it on so if I could just have even if it's an old style iPod 
with no phone, um, <laughs> so long as it's got a Bluetooth speaker and uh, and a Spotify account, I can listen to whatever I want, then I'll be happy. So if you'll let me have that. Yeah, that I'll let you have that. Also, because I guess in our Treasure Islands, we're going to have to have Wi-Fi and connectivity because in the social distancing campus, that's some one of the things that we will be needing. So I can definitely let you have Spotify. <laughs> Thank you Brilliant. very much. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. Okay, so um, hold hold those thoughts. I love the swingometer. Hope you hope you can send us a picture of that as well. And can I turn to our next guest, Anna? Uh, uh, hi, and again, can you please introduce yourself and your? Uh, let's start with your light bulb moments. Okay, so I'm Anna O'Connor. I'm a senior lecturer in orthotics in the School of Health Sciences, and light bulb moments well there's a couple that I was sort of thinking of one really early days and it in my teaching career and it sounds dead simple um when I started you know as a clinician that's what I worked as first I was in hospitals and there's just some basic fundamentals you, you just know that if the eye does certain things it's this or if it does and this is why and it's just kind of your bread and butter you're every, you just don't think about it it's just there and then, you know, sort of teaching the, the first years and you're thinking they're getting it. And then the marks come in and the, the exams, you're like, they're not getting this. And it's like, yeah, I need to. But in, within the teaching sessions, they're sitting there nodding at you. And it's all of that kind of, right, actually, I need to check their understanding before that and make sure that they get it. Because, you know, what they're telling me and what they're actually understanding is two different things. And sort of, and also sort of going back to basics a lot more and not making assumptions because it it's just it's something you apply to every patient and you, you just you just know it and but they have to get that knowledge level. But I think there was another one that I just want to bring in was because we're always talking about movements, eye movements, orth meaning uh, straight, and optics meaning vision. We're looking at the eyes and how they move and how they stay together, and you can't put movement onto yeah, a PowerPoint. You can put in PowerPoint, but it, it just it, it doesn't replicate real life. And but they don't see patients until quite a few while later. So yeah, you can talk about things, but they often don't get in. Um, I went to a learning teaching conference at Liverpool, and they're talking about animations, and they were saying, oh, we did this. I, I think it was um, some surgery, skin flaps, and they were talking about. And I just get excited. I'm, you know, I'm sitting there going, we can do this with eyes. Eyes move. Eyes, this is brilliant. We need this for eyes. We need, you know, things that move is just perfect. So, you know, ever since then, we've sort of been building up like a portfolio, really, of different eye movement animations, different tests so that student can click on this and select this and or what happens. And they can move through it at their own pace. They can repeat it. So there's... Um, yeah, it just gives them that opportunity to interact and engage with it. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. So does that mean then that uh, you now feel students having been exposed to these resources and you know what you said about introducing some earlier checkpoints that you are you, you can see that development and understanding a little bit better? I'd certainly for some of, you know, because I you know, sort of revised how I taught things and yes definitely uh there, there is a lot more getting it at an earlier stage and with the animations so far what we've been doing is asking the students their perceptions about it what how do they feel about it do they enjoy it do, and you know it's been overwhelmingly positive in that respect and we haven't it's very difficult to actually attribute um exam assessment marks directly to one tool that you've used because there's other teaching still going on 
Um, but yeah, I mean, we certainly feel it's beneficial in uh, you know, sort of from the student engagement perspective uh, and enjoyment uh, you know, uh, with the learning as well as the, the, the actual attainment at the end of it and potentially that you know, taking that forward into sort of once they're seeing patients. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about the design process of these animations as well? So that's obviously you, you as you're designing that uh, for students, you are also incorporating some of the teaching aspects in making sure that they will work the way you, you know, the, yeah. the way you want them. Absolutely. We've had to go back to basics just from the perspective of the the person we've been working with uh, doing the animations. We have to say this moves this at this speed in this direction. At the, and it, we've got to break it down. So it's really good for us to kind of go, hang on, what is exactly happening? It takes us back to basics as well. But also from a pedagogical standpoint, it's like, right, well, how can we make sure the students understand what's going on? And then layering that within the teaching. So it's not, not just about creating this tool, it's how it's then you know, um, mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. Great. OK, thank you. That's a lovely insight. So uh, casting your way, what, what are your desert island disc or treasure island disc. So now, you know, obviously we will go into a period of socially distanced campus. What can you take from these light bulb moments? What would you like to take from these light bulb moments into your treasure island with the students? And then similarly, a teaching prop and um, luxury item for you. Well, if it obviously from teaching prop, I'm thinking the eye animations, but if you had to sort of go back to basics, give me an eyeball. You know, a, a big model one, not real. No. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a nice big model eyeball. I can move it around and show things. And do, you know, um, that would be a sort of a good prop um, or something that, like I say, the animations are engaging with the students and um, sort of interacting in that way. Um, in the luxury item, I think, like Stuart, it's got to be music, you know, and a range of music because then you've got like something to make you happy to something to dance around to something to relax to you know I love a good sort of musicals a bit of uh, 42nd street or something you know uh, get me sort of singing along you know dancing around that that would that helps me brilliant it. yeah I'm sure the students would enjoy that as well yeah I'm not <laughs> dancing though <laughs> <laughs> brilliant thank you very much Anna so um let's Turn to uh, and hold those thoughts because we will meet on the Treasure Island in a, in a, in our next uh, podcast. But the, I think our third guest, James, is waiting. So can I ask you again about light bulb moments and introduce yourself just briefly? Okay, my name is James Gaynor. I'm a lecturer in chemistry. Um, in terms of a light bulb moment, um, I try to I try to pin it down to one, but there's been there's been quite a few. So what I've tried to do is try to just think of the different types of light bulb moments I've had. So there are four main, I have four main kind of um, scenarios where I teach. So large lecture, medium sized groups of about 20 or 30, um, small group, and then in the lab. Um, and when I kind of break it all down, the times that I've had um, realizations that the students are just getting it are when we're doing something quite active. Um, it sounds quite simple, um, but it's it's um, you know in a lecture using things like clickers so you can get some direct direct feedback um, in workshops and tutorials it's just the act of questioning and kind of honing how you question students to make them think don't just give them the answer um, and it's a classic it's a classic technique but I suppose I didn't when I came into this role you don't really you don't really get training 
immediately you you teach and you do training on the job so you're kind of learning as you as you're going really so it was kind of a realization that you know the act of making them think be active and then again similarly in a lab where it's quite important where they often follow a script trying to give them the opportunity to not just follow the script but to query and question the script um because there's a health and safety issue we need to make sure they follow <laughs> health and safety when you've got 100 people in the lab at once but given the opportunity to critique it makes them more engaged and the more they engage the kind of is, is is the better so enjoyable activities that make them engage generally leads to um leads to a realization that they understand or ha have an appreciation of what they're doing mm -hmm. so that's similar seems to what Stuart talked about enjoyment and fun and active yeah, learning as absolutely. Anna mentioned as well and um, I mean what that's interesting what you said about critiquing a, a script can you talk a little bit about that yeah, so I've simplified it a little bit. I've, techniques I've used before is where I, I'd give them a lab script um, uh, in, in a jumbled way. So this is a technique that was has been done elsewhere in the chemistry lab, um, and they have to order it. And it might sound simple to order it, but understanding the process of how a reaction works is quite important. Um, something I introduced, which I've not really seen done anywhere else, is I, I use questions to consider. So these things are, there's a script, but at every single point it kind of asks them, you know, why are you heating this up? Why are you measuring this out to four decimal places? Why um, why are you taking the top layer in a separation funnel um, rather than just blindly following the script to try and basically it's, it's a way of switching from a cookbook style to more inquiry based without having the, um, uh, the without being brave enough to go fully inquiry based when you've got 100 students. Um, because there's just too many variables then. Um, so the uh, it was a way of just trying to make them think about the script without actually binning the script and letting them decide what to do, which in a chemistry lab is a bit scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and yeah, risky. Yeah. <laughs> and right. I guess you are also making a subject which is not necessarily, uh, I, I'm not sure when I hear health and safety, it's not necessarily a subject that people would be thinking it's fun or, you know, would be jumping around. But then I'm not a chemist, so I probably can... I know uh, it's, say things that, but it's kind of making that, as you said, enjoyable and intriguing. Try, yeah, try, try to. Everything I do, I try and making it fun is one step into getting them to engage. If they're engaged, um, there's more, there's more chance of learning. Um, so it, it's the way I try and do it. And again, trying to do it for some subjects that are considered to be quite dry, um, kind of challenging. Um, so yeah, I, just making them active and think. Um, I've, lectures have their place but even within a 50-minute lecture you can have them thinking uh, by asking them questions and then can you talk a little bit about the law role of you or the lecturer in this point so let's say if you give them this activity of the jumbled you know how do you see your role in that or what do you and normally do in 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 those tasks um so it, it usually be in a workshop type um arrangement where um so I'd have, say, PhD demonstrators with me as well, um, but they just basically talk in a group amongst themselves um, and then they'll come up with a suggested arrangement, call a demonstrator or me over um, and then we can just discuss it with them and say, well, you know, measuring out this before adding that just seems, a, you know, is that a sensible way of doing it? So it comes back to the critiquing of the of the mm -hmm. script and making them. It's like if you, you, know, if you want to bake a cake, you know, thinking about each step and why you're doing it. Do people really do that? No, they just follow the 
most people just follow the mm. follow the method. Um, but do you know why you have to add the egg at a certain point? I'm not a baker. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know, people think chemists are bakers, but they're not necessarily bakers. <laughs> I think um, Stuart can add something based on your Twitter feed, Stuart. I think you know a lot about cake making. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, so but, but that, it, that, that's kind of the background principle to make them think about the technique. So when they are in a situation where they haven't got a method, they can make the method themselves. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay, I think it's time to uh, slowly roll to your treasure island. What yeah. would be your items and albums to take there? Uh, um, so, in terms of the, um, in terms of kind of the, what to take with me, it would be, well, I would take a lab, um, a, a chemistry lab. Um, it's quite a big item to take, but <laughs> it's a, it's a fundamental aspect of uh, chemistry teaching um, and a requirement of our programs is that they have lab-based experience. So I would take a lab with me. Um, and even though I've been advocating active learning, sometimes it's just, you need to have a go and have a play at doing stuff. So some of the active learning stuff can be done outside the lab, but in the lab, they have to actually have to have the hands-on equipment and using equipment. Um, so that's why, you know, that's what I would take with me. Okay. We will see. I might have to talk to my superiors to ask, if if you you if you are allowed to take a whole lab to the treasure island, but I you, think it should be okay. Okay, that's good. <laughs> under certain conditions. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Oh yes, your luxury item. Um, I'm uh, considering Spotify is allowed. I'd go slightly the other way and have a TV with Netflix built in. Okay, so. that's fair enough. Yes. So. Good. Okay. That's brilliant. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. And then think our la- last guest, uh, but not least, Diana, have you got you on? And um, so can I ask you please to introduce yourself and talk about a light bulb moment with your students? Hi, Tundi. Thanks for the invitation. Yes, I'm Diana Jita. I work on African history uh, in the history department. Um, and I I've had, like like others, I've had so many light bulb moments and, and actually some of my best ones have already been taken by the other people. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think for me, the light bulb moment does always boil down to that thing of getting students to think for themselves because that's when the light bulb comes on when you do your own thinking and you suddenly think, oh, now I get it. Um, so this is really just saying what other people have said in some ways. Um, One of the things that that we do uh, in one of our first year modules, uh, where we're trying to get students to recognize that there are ways of understanding history that don't revolve around Europe. And that if you are based in another part of the world with another history, the history of the world might look very different. Uh, And one of the ways we start this is just very simple. We show them a map of the world, we turn it upside down, We put Europe at the bottom of the side uh, and then we ask them, why are the lines on the map drawn where they are? And so many of those lines are straight. Why are the lines straight? And most of them have never thought about why is Europe in the middle of the world map? And they've never thought about why the lines on the map are the shape they are. And they certainly haven't thought about why Greenland looks almost as big as Africa. So you just get them thinking about those things. And we ask students to keep a journal. And this is the first thing they do on that module. And the first thing they say in their journal is, I never thought of that before. 
I had never asked that question before. And that for me is what it's about. It's getting the students to work out what are the right questions to ask. And once they can do that, then they can do anything. And we've had some fantastic examples of that this week, because one of the things we cover is Black Lives Matter. And another thing that we cover has been Roads Must Fall. And the students have kind of learned the history and the background and so on. But mostly what we've said to them is, why are these things happening now? And why are they taking the form that they are taking? And my, my inbox this week is absolutely full of students saying, wow, this all makes sense. I understand what's happening now. I understood the news. Um, so that's what that must be fantastic for you. Yeah, yeah, well, it is. I feel a bit smug actually. Um, only last <laughs> week I was talking to your colleague Joanna about whether I should ditch doing Roads Must Fall from the module because it was kind of not so contemporary anymore and we want students to reflect on the history of contemporary events and then wow, it all just blew up again. So, um, but it is all about asking those questions and, and, and also understanding that it doesn't matter what kind of history you're doing, you can always ask a question. So if you're doing international history, you can still ask questions about culture. If you're doing cultural history, you can still ask questions about politics. That it's all about the questions that you're asking and that you don't have to pigeonhole yourself with the questions you ask. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, also what you're saying that one one of the way you're making these light bulb moments is empowering students to ask questions. And as you said, turn the world upside down, you know, looking at things from a different perspective. Yeah, and, and, and to do that collectively as well. One of the most useful bits of advice I was given when I first started teaching was when you look at your timetable and it's got L on it for some of your teaching sessions and S on it for others of your teaching sessions. That doesn't stand for lecture and seminar. It stands for large group and small group. And what you do in those groups is entirely up to you. You don't have to lecture in lectures and getting students to talk to each other in lectures and do collective activities in lectures can be really effective because they get the, the buzz of being there all together and doing it all together. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's that's uh, that's a great. Uh, yeah, I love language language plays as well in questioning pedagogy. I think that that's also something nicely illustrated. OK, so I think it's time to go towards your tre treasure island now. What items would you take with you? Well, this is a hard one, isn't it? Um, I, for me, there's no obvious thing like an eyeball or, or a chemistry lab. Um, it would be great to be able to take the British Library. I mean, if James can have a chemistry lab, why can't I have the British Library? But, um, but failing that, uh, to be honest, what would be really useful would be a whiteboard with lots of different coloured and never running out marker pens and a very large whiteboard. Because I think there's an enormous amount that happens when you just write things up in response to what students are saying and then underline things in different colours and write things in different colours and draw arrows that connect things, especially for students for whom text isn't necessarily the, the easiest way for them to, to uh, absorb information. To be able to draw things and do arrows and, and, and shapes is really important. So I, I find just that the basic whiteboard is a really useful teaching tool. Excellent. I'm sure we can let you have that. And then luxury item for you. Well, and again, this might be cheating a bit because what I want to do when I, I stop working is I like to do something with my hands like sewing or knitting. But 
that doesn't work unless I'm also listening to something. So what I need is a package where I've got an infinite amount of sewing and knitting projects, plus something that will play me uh, audio books and, 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 and Radio 4 dramas at the same time. Okay, excellent. Or you can join Stuart or Anna in their Treasure Islands and, and hook up their Hop Spotify secretly. <laughs> <laughs> or not so secretly. <laughs> okay, excellent. As well, I'm at it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, that's lovely. Oh, that, that was brilliant. So um, I think this, this concludes the first part of the podcast. So we've got four Treasure Islands and uh, let's see in our next part of the podcast how we might take these ideas forward into the next year. So thank you very much for listening. <laughs>